0: We come now, Father, to feast upon the meal that you have provided for us in your word. We don't get to pick and choose what we want to eat when we read your word as we should systematically, verse by verse, passage by passage. And even those sections of scripture, like we saw last week about Judas, that seem bitter, not sweet to our taste. Once we have eaten it, we have discovered, we discover it was sweeter than anything we could have imagined. And so it is time and time again as we come to your word. And so feed us, Father, the rich truths of your word, and change us, sanctify us, by your truth, your word is truth, not the thinking or the mind of any man. so Father, I that you protect us from error, Send your spirit to minister the truth to us so that we can minister to one another, both here and in our small groups tonight. Be glorified in this hour, Lord, we pray in the name of our Savior jesus amen i 'm going to ask you to stand with me. We are in John chapter thirteen, beginning with verse thirty one and Uh, Let's read this section together. The passage before us this morning is all about the glory of Christ. It's about how the Father glorifies Jesus, and it's about how we get to participate in that by glorifying Jesus through loving one another. So let's read this text together. John 13, beginning with verse 31. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, I now say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me, but you will follow later. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I won't lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. May the Lord richly bless us this morning through the preaching and reading of his word. And you can be seated. There are a number of things happening in this text, obviously, but the primary message Jesus is giving his disciples is about his glory, the glory of Christ. I believe Jesus is teaching us here that there are two me, too, too primary means by which his glory is to be manifest to the world. First, first is the glory of Christ shown in his crosswork. His cross work. And secondly, is the glory of Christ shown through our love work. So we have cross work, and we have love work. We have the work that the Father is doing through the Son on the cross, and we have the work that we get to participate in in glorifying Christ through loving one another. Jesus' work on the cross is the primary means by which the Father glorifies the Son, and our work of love is the primary means that we get to glorify the Son and thus prove to be his disciples. And so let's look at this one at a time. This section, we're really going to break into two parts, and that last section there, 36 through 39, we'll just touch on briefly and probably not spend much time on even next week. So number one, the glory of Christ in his cross work. Let's look at this again, verses 31 through 33. Therefore, when he had gone out, that's a reference to Judas. When Judas had gone out of the upper room, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I say to you where I am going, you cannot come. It is the night before the crucifixion. Jesus and his disciples are sharing their last meal together. Jesus here establishes the Lord's table. He washes his disciples' feet before he establishes the Lord's table and in that dinner that that feast of the passover which he uses to establish the Lord's table he identifies that there is a betrayer in their midst and we we think he indicates to John that Judas is that man who will betray Jesus hands him a piece of bread as a symbol of honor we think Culturally, that's what it appears to be, as if to disguise the very fact of what, of what Judas is going to do, and Jesus simply reaches over to him and says, what you do, do quickly. And the disciples have no idea what's going on. John, John has some inclination about Judas may be this betrayer, but I don't even think he understands what the betrayal invo- would involve. And so it's this night. And as we've noted before, all the chapters leading up, all of the chapters leading to here, chapter 13, all of them take place over a period of three years. For the next five chapters, chapters 13 um, through 17, we need to understand that those five chapters take place in one night. All of this is one night. Maybe we should just read it and stay as long as it takes to read that. This section of John's Gospel is often referred to as Jesus' farewell discourse. These are his last words before he is killed. In a sense, this is his last will and testament. And so what he has to say to his disciples here is of paramount importance. Before the rooster crows, he will be arrested and interrogated. And by the end of the next day, his body will hang lifelessly upon a cross. And all of it is set in motion by Judas's exit from the upper room. Verse 31, we read, when he had gone out. As I said, this is a reference to Judas exiting the upper room. The traitor is now gone. Jesus has a little bit of time to speak to his eleven Which he affectionately refers to as his own. The 11 who are left here are the true disciples. They will be the true apostles. These are the men who will lay down their lives in service to the Lord. And and Jesus makes mention of that. You will follow me. These are those who truly love Jesus, who will lay down their lives. For him. He had personally chose them to be his apostles, these men upon whom Jesus set his special affection and care. He loved them. And they would follow him to the end. Upon Judas's exit, verse 31, Jesus begins to speak. Now he has freedom. Now the only betrayer, now the only outsider is gone. Now he's with his core group, his faithful. And he says this. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Glory, 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 glory. You hear that in here? It's this repetition. There's glory coming. There's glory coming. It is now. The time is now. It is right now. It is going to begin tonight. Glory. Glory. And yet it's dark and bad things are going to happen. What do you mean by glory? There can be no doubt here that Jesus is speaking of his own crucifixion. No doubt at all. Granted, it's kind of counterintuitive to think of such a terrible event as glory, but in this case, it was. One chapter earlier, chapter 12, verse 27, here's what Jesus says. Now my soul has become troubled. Why? Because he's thinking about what's coming. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came into the world. I have come to this hour. You see, Jesus came to do cross work. He came to accomplish his cross work. He came to take away the sins of the world. He came to be the lamb of God, slaughtered as the once for all perfect sacrifice for all who would believe. This is why he came, and this was the moment, this was the time, it was about to happen. This is the fulfillment of the Father's ultimate plan to rescue sinners, a plan which the Father established with the Son, which Peter refers to as the eternal covenant, before the creation of the world. This is the fulfillment of that plan, and because of that, it was the means by which the Father would glorify the Son. We know this is what Jesus is talking about because the next verse, verse 33, he says, little children, notice the affection here, we'll come back to that. Little children, I am with you a while longer and you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I say to you that where I'm going you cannot come. The only place Jesus had ever been with his or or in his three years of ministry that the disciples couldn't accompany him. Of course, the obvious question on everyone's mind at this point, I mean, put yourself in the upper room. Jesus is saying I'm leaving. I'm leaving. And you can't come. What? You're leaving? And we can't come? Where are you going? Where could you possibly go? You're our master. We are your disciples. We are nothing without you. Where could you go that we wouldn't be allowed to come? Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? Verse 37. I will lay down my life for you. It is not too dangerous for me. I'm not afraid. Wherever it is you go, listen, let's leave the other 10. (laughs) Those guys are... Scaredy, a little bit. I'm not afraid. I'll come with you. Wherever you're going, don't go alone. I'll lay down my life for you. Little bravado there, apparently. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me. Three times. Amazing. The sovereign omnipotence of this foot washing servant called Jesus the Messiah. It's amazing. And the only reason I'm not going to spend more time on that is because Peter will indeed deny him three times and that's important and we'll come to it but John is setting us up for that and reminding us that Jesus is God like we learned last week and part of the definition of God is he can tell the end from the beginning, he can reveal to us the end from the beginning and here he is doing it again it's a God statement it's a deity statement it is an I am so Jesus is saying to his men you can follow me everywhere else, and you have, but you can't follow me to the cross. There's no room for you there. And, and you wouldn't do anything to help the Father's plan by being crucified. I have to do the cross work by myself, but you will follow me. You will follow me, each one of you. To the grave. Matthew 24 9, Jesus speaking again, he says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And even here in the Gospel of John, verse or chapter 16, verse 2, they will make you outcasts. By the way, this, he says this the same night. I mean, this is within what minutes, hour. John 16, two, they will make you outcasts from the synagogues, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. Peter would indeed follow Christ as a martyr to the grave. And Tradition says that when that happened, they were going to nail him to a cross like his Lord. And, and Peter declared his unworthiness to be crucified like his Lord and asked that he be crucified upside down. We don't know if that's true, but a lot changed for Peter after the resurrection. The work of atonement, this is what Jesus was doing. The work of atonement, the work of sin-bearing, the work of substitution, only Jesus could do that. He was the only one who possessed the unique characteristics and qualifications to accomplish the work of redemption. And because of that, the cross was the event of his glory. It was the event of his majesty. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, and yes, that means on a cross, but it also means glory, I will draw all men to me. The cross is the event of his glory. And Jesus makes makes that all the more explicit. We're, We're in 13, okay, same night, chapter 17. Just turn two pages to the right. Same night, they've left the upper room by now, they've crossed, uh, they've been walking across the, um, um, the uh, Mount of Olives, on the Mount of Olives, before they descend into the valley and go to the garden, Jesus looks up into heaven and he begins praying, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer, and kind of toward the end of the high priestly prayer he says, or uh, here at the beginning, we'll look at the end later, but here at the beginning of his high priestly prayer he says this, verse 1, then Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Glorify me so that I can glorify you. Glorify me through my crosswork, so that you will be glorified through redemption. In verse 5, 4 and 5 same chapter, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you have given me. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had before the world was. What does that mean for the Father to glorify Jesus? What does it mean for God the Father to glorify the Son? It means that the Father will set on display before men and angels and demons alike the invisible attributes of Jesus that make him eternally glorious. Through the cross, God will show the world that Jesus is glorious both in his person and in his work. Let me just give you a sample Jesus is glorious in his person. Look, there is no one like him. (laughs) There is no one. To whom will you compare the living Christ? There is none like him. He is infinitely holy. He is the only person as holy as the Father. And only a person who is as holy as the Father could become the spotless lamb of God to bear the sins of the world. Not only that, but he is the personification of infinite love. John 3.16. If I can say it the way it's written in the Greek. In this manner, God loved the world. He gave his son the only one. His only one. In Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. John 15.13, greater love has no one than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. Jesus was the personification of the Father's infinite love. And not only that, but he's the radiance of the Father's glory. He is glorious because God is glorious. He is God. Hebrews 1.3, the word uh, John 1.14 says, the word became flesh. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the Father's glory so that eternal deity could suffer human mortality in our behalf. So the deity, the God, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, united in this hypostatic union with the living human Jesus, put together in the form of a baby. This is mystery to us. Everything that God is, he is. Everything that man is, he is. United, hypostatically together in one person. Jesus. Unified so that eternal deity could suffer human mortality on our behalf. But not only is Jesus glorious in his person and we could... We could spend weeks just on that, and people have. In fact, a um, little story about the Puritans. Uh, how many of you know Thomas Watson, right? You read Thomas Watson a little bit? Uh is, I, I think reading Thomas Watson is like candy for the soul. A lot of, a lot of the old guys, just really hard to read. Like when J.I. Packer talks about um, John Owen, refers to his writing style, John Owen's writing style. He says, John Owen's writing style is like a large elephant lumbering through tall grass. <laughs> Hard to read. Not so with Watson. It's candy for the soul, and it's nourishment for the soul. And there's another great Puritan by the, sti- by the name of Stephen Charnock, or Carnock, disagreement on no pronouncement there, and a uh, great scholar. They both suffered during the reign of Mary, Bloody Mary. But they both survived, and they were allowed to come back to to pastor churches. And uh, many people don't realize that that these two great men, Thomas Watson and Stephen Carnock, actually came to the same church and became co-pastors. And um, they decided, they, they would take turns preaching, and they decided that they would each write a systematic theology, and Thomas Watson began writing, and he completed his. It's called The Body of Divinity. And some of you young guys have been reading that, and that is fantastic. I love that book. I used to have it until my son stole it from me, and, uh, or borrowed it indefinitely. <laughs> you know, um, And Stephen Carnock, I'm, I'm getting to this point right here, okay? <laughs> Stephen Charnock started writing his systematic theology, and could never get past the attributes of God. Thomas Watson's Body of Divinity, in which he takes the Westminster Confession and he just unpacks the whole thing in a book about that thick, and it's a delight to the soul. Even if you don't agree with all of it, it's a delight to the soul. Stephen Charnock, his book. How many of you remember what a phone book is? You know, it's that thick, and he died before he finished it. The very first thing you, you address in, in theology is that is theology proper, the doctrine of God. He couldn't get past the doctrine of God, and then he met him. Would you like to have those two guys as your pastor. I'd quit if they would come <laughs> and just sit under that glorious teaching. This is Jesus, the glorious person. It's inexhaustible. It's inexhaustible. I'm almost ashamed to try to give you three attributes of Jesus. My time is limited. So let's look at Jesus is glorious in his person, but he's also glorified in his work. Because you see, through the cross, listen to this, through the cross, he He will satisfy God's just and holy wrath against sinners. And through the cross, he destroys the power of sin and death, and through the cross, he annuls the power of Satan, the prince of this world. And on the cross, Jesus obtained release for sinners. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus obtained judgment against the world. He condemned sin in the flesh, and on the cross, he obtained judgment against this world. And all of the manifest virtues of God are set on display in the person of Jesus Christ in his cross work. As S. Lewis Johnson so vividly said, every attribute of deity is superlatively magnified in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every attribute of deity is superlatively magnified in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Peter in Acts 3 could say, God has glorified his servant, Jesus. This is after. This is after the crucifixion and the resurrection. This is Pentecost, or shortly after. God has glorified his servant, Jesus, the prince of life, whom you put to death. He was the prince of life. And then What appeared to be the mystery of God's providence in that day, God allowed you to murder him. Jesus wasn't glorified in his baptism. This is interesting. You think about times when Jesus, you know, in the the Gospels, you think, wow, he's really lifted up here. But not glorified. At his baptism, you remember what happened? The Father spoke out of heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit descended in in the form of a dove, something that looked like a dove. That was amazing. And yet the apostolic authors don't say Jesus was glorified at his baptism. And what about the Mount of Transfiguration? Well, that was amazing. Peter, James, and John got to go to the mountain to pray with Jesus. And all of a sudden he starts shining. He starts glowing. And then he becomes so bright they can't stand to look at him. A cloud appears. It's the Shekinah of God. And God's voice comes out of the cloud and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And there is God revealing Jesus' essential glory. Does that make sense? Essential glory. Essential comes from the word essence. It is, you know, if you, if you, um, if you like pure vanilla, 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 <laughs> tomato, tomato, whatever. Whatever. Uh, Pure vanilla extract is the essence of vanilla. It's it's the essential stuff of vanilla. And we talk about the essence of Jesus' glory. This wasn't other people, this wasn't the other way to think about glory and glorify is to ascribe glory to his name to say that he is glorious, to recognize none of that was happening here. It was just God unveiling the essential glory of Jesus before these men, and they didn't know what to do. And Peter, not knowing what to say, said something silly. <laughs> Why don't we make three tabernacles, one for you. And Moses showed up, so let's make one for him. He just showed up, let's make one for him, and we'll just kumbaya from here on. And... Um, And yet nowhere in the text, in the apostolic authors, does it say that's when God glorified his son. But here, at the cross, Jesus is glorified. It's ironic, isn't it? He was stripped naked. He was condemned as a criminal. He was nailed by the feet feet and hands. He had a crown of thorns on his head. They mocked him. They pulled out his beard. They stabbed him in the side with a spear. And, um, and it was glory. Because of who he was. Because of his cross work. Many, many, many people died on the cross. Only one accomplished anything for your soul. As only he could. That's why he is glorious in his crucifixion. Jesus wasn't glorified any other place but here, at least in terms of how the scriptures present it. And so the glory of Christ is shown in his cross work, and we dare not ever meet on a Sunday morning without talking about his cross work, because this is the gospel. If he didn't do that, if God didn't glorify the Son through his cross work, we would be damned. We would be condemned to hell. But Jesus humbled himself and took on the form of a servant and became obedient even to death on a cross. He washed their feet. He was betrayed by Judas. He went out into the dark. He was falsely arrested and tried and beaten. And then died as our substitute. And thus, God glorified his son. And that's evident, isn't it? It's self-evident. I mean, you you just think of what's happened to the world since then. Since Jesus' resurrection, the glory of God in the gospel of Christ has begun to cover the world like the, like the waters cover the sea. It is glory. But it's amazing here that we see not only Jesus' glory in his cross work, but Jesus himself takes it in a different direction. The glory of Christ is shown not only in the cross work of Jesus, but in the love work of his disciples. Now I tell you that it's it's significant that these two are put together because his cross work is so significant what John attaches to what Jesus attaches to it in the same breath almost must demonstrate to us the glorious significance of us loving one another Look at verses 34 and 35 Where are we John 13 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, but you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It is possible to follow Jesus in such a way that ascribes great glory to his name in this world Jesus Christ is greatly glorified when disciples love one another. Now, this is really important to the Apostle John. I think it's going to be important to us, I I trust. I hope you'll leave here with an elevated sense of importance of loving one another. I hope you'll show up to your small group tonight. If you don't know what your small group is, call somebody. Um I would say call Jason, but I won't name him publicly. You can, uh, or Dana or somebody. Don't call me, I don't know. Find out what your small group is tonight and learn to love one another. It is gloriously significant. And so John puts these two things together. Jesus puts them together. John just records it. And something happened to John this night He caught on to this statement to a degree that it seems to me the other apostolic authors didn't. And I come to that conclusion not merely because John records it for us here, but because of what he does with it in his first epistle. Now, if you're new to all of this, we're in John's gospel. There are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's a gospel. It's the good news of the story of Jesus' life Death and resurrection. We call that a gospel. And then there are these shorter documents, which are letters, or the old word for letter is epistle. And John wrote three epistles, one gospel, but three epistles, and in his first epistle called First John. We refer to it as if you're in England, it's one John. If you're in America, it's first John. And what he does with this in First John is stunning. If, if you just study 1 John as it is, it's a wonderful, wonderful book, but if you understand 1 John is coming out of chapter thirty or, or, or 13, verse 34 of the Gospel of John, that's amazing, and I'm going to show you. You ready? Yes, Pastor Dan, I am ready. Lead on. <laughs> Turn with me to 1 John. I want you to see this for yourself, and while you're turning there, Let me make my first observation. Keep your finger in in the Gospel of John, chapter 13. But turn to 1 John. But in the Gospel of John, verse 33, Jesus calls his disciples by a peculiar name. He says to them, he starts this whole thing off by saying, little children, is verse 33, little children, and then he says what he has to say. This was a term of deep, familial tenderness and love. The literal translation of little children is this. Little born ones, little babies. And he's not being insulting. He's treating them like his beloved children. I will often say to my kids, children, come, come here, come sit down, you know, come talk to me, come. Children, It's it's a term of endearment, it's a term of familial love, little children, little born ones, and this is our first clue that the Apostle John was really affected by what happened this night in the upper room, and I say that because in the original language, the term here, little children, is spelled out in a peculiar form that is not used anywhere else. Um... Nowhere in the Gospel of John do you find another place where Jesus or anyone else refers to the disciples or other people as little children. Now, there are places where Jesus calls his disciples children, but he doesn't use this particular Greek term. But here's the thing. Oh, and and you not only don't see it anywhere else in John, you don't see it anywhere else in the New Testament. Except... In 1 John, where we find it no less than seven times. Now try to follow along with me, chapter 2 of 1 John. My little children, same word, I am writing to you that you may not sin. Chapter 2, verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Chapter 2, verse 28. Now, little children, abide in him. Chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. Chapter 3, verse 8. Little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Chapter 4, verse 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. In chapter 5, verse 21, the very last statement in this book little children, guard yourselves from idols. I look at this and I say, this is noteworthy. When you're studying the scriptures, And you find a unique phrase and you go looking for it in the rest of the New Testament and it doesn't show up anywhere else except in the same author's epistle and it's multiplied. So we see that John worked hard at making disciples of Jesus Christ and as he did so, he did so with the same familial love that his master did and not only that, but he presses those who were under his care to love one another as one of the preeminent marks of being a true disciple now back in chapter 13 but don't switch there yet i want to stay in first 1 john 13:34 jesus says this a new commandment i give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus is saying, the badge of a true disciple, the mark of a true disciple is he has this love for other people. He loves other people. He doesn't always like them, but he loves them. He serves them. He sacrifices for them. You get the difference? To love is to give what I have that you need because God wants me to, regardless of how I feel. Christians do that. Christians do that. Husbands do that for wives if they're walking in the Spirit. Wives do that for husbands if they're walking in the Spirit. Children do that for their siblings. <laughs> Theoretically, <laughs> when they're walking in the Spirit, this is a mark of a true disciple. And that begs the questions. Um, how do I intend to show how do I intend to show the world that I'm a Christian? Will I do it by wearing a big cross from my neck? Will I do it by the putting a fish sticker on my car or by the bold and clever message on my Christian t-shirt? What about my theology? Well, they know that I'm a Christian because I talk theology all the time. And, and you know, it's okay to be known by doctrine and theology, but the truth of God is not static. It is going somewhere. It is moving towards something. It has a goal in mind. And the Apostle Paul makes it clear in 1 Timothy 1.5 where he says, The goal of our instruction is what? Love. Isn't that interesting? The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And I I would just say, those of you who love theology, be careful. By all means, love theology. I love theology. I love reading theology. I love talking about theology. But if your theology does not drive you to love and serve other people, something's wrong with your theology or something's wrong with your heart. Something's wrong with your heart. In 1 John, the apostle makes love for others. Now, listen to this. Okay, we're going to raise the bar here a little, because John does. In 1 John, the apostle makes love for others out to be not merely a badge of discipleship, but a test of true discipleship. Now, here's what I'm doing. I want you to get, I want you to feel the weight of what Jesus is saying that he is glorified not only in his cross work, but in your love work, and he attaches the two together as almost as if they are of equal importance. And we know that that his cross work is infinitely more important than anything we do. And yet, from the human perspective, it's as as if Jesus is saying, this is the ultimate of what I am here to do, and this is the ultimate of what you are here to do. I'm here to do cross work. You're here to do love work. God the Father is glorifying me through my cross work. You can glorify me. That's why you exist. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to what? What? Glorify God. How do you glorify God? Jesus is saying you glorify God the Son by loving one another. This is a mark of true discipleship and John will take that and say, it's not just a mark. It's a test of true discipleship. Do you love one another? Now it's easy to say, it's another thing to demonstrate, so let me show you. Um, I must have deleted the reference to this, but maybe it's in chapter 2. Uh, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. But the one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause of stumbling for him. Now, you've got to understand, abiding in the light here is code for being a child of God and having an open and honest attitude about your sin as a child of God. Now, chapter 3 verse 10. By this by this the children of God and the children of the devil. Okay, now notice the stark contrast. Children of God and children of the devil. By this the children of the de- of God and children of the devil are obvious. It's obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You say, I don't like that person. Okay. Uh, So you're not naturally drawn to that person. Okay. Um, Maybe they've offended you, but do you love them? Do you love them? Chapter 3, verse 14. We know, here it gets even more explicit. We know that we have passed out of death, out of death into life because we love the brethren. Chapter 4, verse 7. Whoever loves is born of God. Born of God, same term Jesus used in John chapter 3, uh, when, he, when he said, born again. Born from above. It's not exactly the same term, but it's, it's, it's a different form. The cross, um, the cross is glorious, but so is your love. And it's not just an option for you to love one another. It is the test as to whether or not you know him. Whoever loves is born of God. And then one more, chapter four, verse eight. The one, and this is a negative. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, why is he making such a big deal out of it? I would suggest to you he's making such a big deal out of it because of what Jesus said in chapter 13 of John the Gospel, in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you so you also must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. This is the distinguishing mark. When I changed your heart, I took out the heart of stone, the dead heart that lived for self, and I put within you a heart that is alive to God, that loves and worships God, it is open and honest about a sin and loves other people. And loves other people. Loving others as Jesus loved is the mark of true discipleship. How will other people know that you're a disciple of Jesus? Your theology probably won't impress them. If you go around talking to people about your theology and, and they're not interested, they're not going to appreciate Your T-shirt probably won't inspire them, no matter how clever and bold. The cross hanging around your neck probably isn't as pretty as the cross hanging around theirs. No, they will know you. They will know you as a disciple of Jesus when they realize that you are loving them in ways that are unexpected. And maybe they have never seen before. Someone might say, I'm not very good at loving people, but I do believe in Jesus. I'm not very good at loving people, but I do believe in Jesus. Well, it is good that you believe in Jesus. It's good. But the Apostle John says, look at 1 John 3, 23. I want to hear your pages turn if you're not there. 1 John 3.23, because I don't want you to miss this. 1 John 3.23, this is his commandment. So John is quoting Jesus. This is his commandment that we believe. I believe. It's good that you believe. This is his commandment that you believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded You say, well, I believe. Do you love? It's good that you believe. Prove you believe. Love. Prove that you believe. Love other people. You won't prove to other people that you belong to God simply by spouting off your theology. What are the marks of a true disciple? A true disciple is one who believes in Jesus and who loves others. I agree with John Piper on this, who said the epistle of 1 John, the Epistle of 1 John is a five chapter exposition of John 13, 35. That does seem to be true. And so I say to you, little children, let us believe in Jesus but let us also love one another. And not merely in word or in tongue, but in deed. And in truth, love one another. Go low in footwashing service toward each other. Make time for people. Spend your money on the needs of others. We've been learning about this. Koinonia is used in all of these ways. Even with people you've never met, you can share fellowship with them by meeting their needs even from afar. Love without concern for race or color or economic status. Love the disabled, the lonely, the troublemaker, And I suspect that there are even some in our church who show up every Sunday because you enjoy the teaching and the music, but you have never yet gotten involved personally in serving the other members of this body sacrificially. And to you and to all of us, I say, with the Apostle John, love, love, love. Believe in Jesus and love one another. The badge of a true disciple of Jesus Christ is this that you love one another as I have loved you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the theological and the practical, which you have intentionally put here side by side. We glory in the rich theology of Jesus' crosswork, and we ask. Humbly for your forgiveness, for neglecting our love work, teach us that this is the way that we can glorify you by loving people sacrificially, by giving of our time, our treasure. And Father, I pray that you would change us and make us a true community of Christ. People who are aware of one another's needs. People who are eager to find out other people's needs, not for the purpose of gossip, but for the purpose of meeting those needs or moving other people toward meeting those needs. Make us, Father, because of the truth of your word, because of this deep, rich theology, make us a people who love like crazy. And all of it for your great glory and our own inexpressible joy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.